0: Hello and welcome back to our latest podcast episode. Uh, We're so glad to have you all with us and we have been quite intrigued as we were looking this week at our download statistics uh, to find that we have had some downloads from Spain, a significant number. None of us have, have shared the link with anyone that we know from Spain. If you are our Spanish listeners, we'd be really keen to hear from you. Uh, we're really glad that uh, the the podcast has has been able to build uh, some community and, and seems to be enjoyed. We'd, we'd love to get to know some of our listeners a little bit better. If you if you are in Spain and you listen to our podcast, then send us an email at uh, to the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And, of course, everyone else is, is welcome to send emails through too. Uh, my name's Cameron, and today we are going to have a discussion on spirit-empowered witnessing.
1: Yeah, g'day. I'm Ken. Good to be with you to uh, join the discussion. Hello, this is Luke from Hong
0: Kong. Good to be here.
2: And I'm Lachlan from Sydney, where this week it's very wet and rainy.
0: Well, I had bright sunshine today, Lach. It was almost got above 10 degrees too, so... Crisp and sunny. Crisp and sunny. My favourite. Last week in our discussion on prayer, we referred to a passage in Luke chapter 11 where Christ uh, teaches his disciples to pray. Uh, If you haven't heard that episode, I'd encourage you to download it. There's some fascinating thoughts in the passages that follow Luke's rendition of the Lord's Prayer. It finished, though, with this phrase. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit... To those who ask him, and I think that that verse is a perfect segue from our last week's episode to this week's uh, discussion on the Holy Spirit. We've decided to focus in at the story of um, Peter and Cornelius, which is found in Acts chapter ten. This is, of course, the story that begins with Peter's vision of the animals coming down in the blanket. We're going to pick it up when Peter is at Cornelius's house. Uh, would you like to start us off,
2: Luke? Sure. This is Acts 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of
1: Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Uh, And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We're witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen.
0: The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. I mean, surely if you're going to do a discussion on, on spirit-empowered witnessing, it, it would have to come from the, the book of Acts, wouldn't it? I mean, that's more or less what the book of Acts is about.
1: Yes, and it's not just the uh, experience in Acts chapter 10, but there's the earlier uh, experience in Acts chapter 2, I think it is, uh, where Peter uh, stood up and spoke to the Jews. And uh, there were how many? 3,000 joined that day, was it? Yes. Those who accepted it, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Uh, So again, the message, those accepting the message being baptized and about 3,000 being added to the number that day, uh, that was to the circumcised believers.
0: The um, sort of distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles is very much exaggerated in the passage we read. You know, they were astonished. It's not just the believers who had come with Peter, it was the circumcised believers who had come with Peter. So the story accentuates their, their Jewishness, as it were. Um, they were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah, it's funny. It's funny that they react that way because right at the start of Peter's little talk or sermon here, in verse 34... Peter says, God shows no partiality. And then in verse 35, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable. And of course, Peter's saying this before the, the passage that we've just read out, Peter's had a vision in which he's really been confronted by this idea that some of the categories of what is in and out, what is right and wrong that he's grown up with are not as helpful in this era of Christian living after the impact of the ministry of Jesus Christ. So Peter, it seems in this story, is perhaps not quite amazed.
1: But those who were with him were.
2: Oh, very much so. In fact, there's an interesting phrasing here. Peter says in verse 47, uh, a question with a very strange construction. He says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? And that's a question that almost is daring anyone to try, and it, it sounds to me really similar to the the story in Acts eight.
0: Is this the eunuch?
2: Philip and the eunuch, that's right. Because the eunuch says, Here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? In both cases it's a it's a slightly strange question that sort of assumes there's a couple of potential negative answers.
0: Well there there are, aren't there? Because Gentiles were not allowed into the temple.
2: That's right. And in fact, eunuchs weren't either and under the, the law from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So in both cases, the question being asked that way is encouraging a good, diligent, first century Jewish, or at least someone aware of Jewish culture, reader to bring to the forefront of their mind a couple of really good reasons that then don't even get addressed in the narrative, both in the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and here with Peter and Cornelius. The question
1: is asked, but it's not answered. Well, indeed, it does get addressed in the next chapter. Um, yeah, it's and, not and answered
0: it's, in that moment.
1: No, but, but but Peter was certainly anticipating what he faced uh, when he went back to uh, uh, Jerusalem, where the circumcised believers criticised him. You uh, went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. And then Peter had to explain it to them. And, and I almost get the sense that by asking this question... Of those circumcised believers who were there, uh, he is providing himself with a little bit of backup uh, for when he gets back to Jerusalem uh, so that he can say, uh, well, look, I asked everybody there and they all thought it was okay as well. Uh, (laughs)
0: Exactly. That's a subtle art that every teacher knows well. Uh, The surest way to protect yourself as a teacher is to say to your students, anyone who has help can ask anyone who has questions can email me any time. ask for help and you know that they won't because students (laughs) never ask for help but it it protects you as a teacher Uh, maybe maybe this is a sort of a rhetorical question he's thrown in so that he can bring it back at a later stage and say hey remember remember i said but the same phraseology is used in chapter 11 verse 18 after peter has explained himself to the jews when they heard that the holy spirit had been given to cornelius and his household Um, They had no further objections and praised God. So good on them. They overcame their prejudice. Saying, so then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Mm.
2: Yeah, of course, it's not the end of the issue there in the book of Acts. It seems to me one of the key themes of this book is that theme of the emerging community of followers of Christ struggling ongoing in an ongoing way with this issue of how what does it mean to be in this community or part of this community what does it mean to not be and they they struggle with this because of course a lot of the simple answers that they had grown up with from a range of different cultures and different backgrounds as the story progresses uh it just it just becomes obvious that they need a new solution to this but it's really interesting to me the role of the spirit in these stories It's fascinating that Peter invokes the Holy Spirit right back in in his description of Jesus' ministry in verse 38, after John proclaimed and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. It's connecting that anointing with the Holy Spirit, that being empowered by the Spirit, right back to Jesus and Jesus' ministry. And then, of course, it's, it's coming upon the Gentile believers here. In verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard his word. And we know from the earlier chapters that that has happened earlier in the book of Acts as well.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's the interaction with the Gentiles which is causing the stress. I think it's this consistent surprise they have at where God's Spirit is cropping up. In what, what I'm trying to say is that in that time, Jews would have avoided Gentiles. But there were Gentiles around. I mean, there were Romans garrisons in Jerusalem. They were They had, would have had trading partnerships with the Greeks and they would have been on speaking terms. Many Jews would have had friends or acquaintances or people they dealt with regularly who were Gentiles. So um, it's certainly unusual to stay in their house. That That wouldn't happen. But it wasn't like meeting a Gentile was an uncommon thing for them. But meeting the Holy Spirit and this holy spirit's turning up everywhere that's the real puzzle
1: for them it seems that there's if there's not a a strict social divide in that there are interactions uh, with others there certainly uh, appears to be quite firm religious divide uh, that that is surprisingly removed and i really think there's a real challenge for the way that uh, we approach our spiritual life. I mean, really, if one looks at this, it would be to the circumcised believers who were with Peter, perhaps something like uh, a good Seventh-day Adventist Christian going to a meeting of the Australian sceptics and saying, well, here we go, the spirit is working even here.
0: Yeah, or if I could be a bit provocative, Ken, it might be like some good Adventist... Trustworthy, efficient, and successful male ministers going to a to a women's ministry tent at church camp and saying, "Well, oh, gee, I think the Holy Spirit's working even here."
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think they would be very well aware that that was the central core of the Holy Spirit's work in any camp meeting. Yes. In any
2: case, there's an interesting question that occurs here, because so often, uh, remember, the lesson is broadly looking at spirit-empowered witnessing. And so often, I mean, even the way that I would pray by default, you know, if I was about to talk to a stranger on the plane, which is one of the sort of, you know, well-known occasions, someone's trapped there back in the days when you flew, someone's trapped there beside you. And you can talk to them for hours, so why not? Good opportunity for witnessing. But the sort of prayer that I would instinctively pray there would be to ask the Holy Spirit to be present, or perhaps even ask the Holy Spirit to help me. It's fascinating, because what Peter does here is he proclaims a testimony about his experience with Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit falls upon the people who've been listening to him. It's The Spirit is certainly empowering this ministry, this witnessing, but not necessarily directly by superheroing Peter, but sort of by stepping in as a as an external factor in all of this, beyond Peter. I don't know, am I getting at something, am I maybe just have the wrong picture from childhood growing up that witnessing uh, when when we say spirit empowered, I sort of automatically think of it empowering me as the witnesser whereas here it's empowering the people who are hearing.
1: Yeah, I think that might be partly because uh, that seems to be the message that we get uh, uh, from Acts 2 when he addressed the crowd there. I think uh, there was a reference to, you know, this was after the, the, the Holy Spirit had come upon them and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So uh, there's that Spirit-enabling uh, work there in Acts 2, um, uh, but over here, and, and that's not inconsistent with the Spirit working on those who were listening as well, uh, because they each hear in their own uh, tongue. But uh, over here again, uh, we don't have that expressly referred to, uh, except that uh, in verse 33, now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Uh, so there is still that empowerment uh, by God. But I do think you're onto something Uh, Lachlan because one of the things and we saw this from last week ask and you shall receive and we're told seek and you will find well what do you do when you seek you look diligently everywhere Uh, so what we should be doing is looking for where God is at work and that's not just going to be with us Uh, he's going to be working everywhere. This is his world. And we ought be looking for the places where uh, he is working. Sometimes that will be in the church. Sometimes the church will be a great barrier to his working. Often uh, it will be in places where we don't expect it to be. And we ought be looking uh, for those places so that we can cooperate with God. And when we do, there's no excuse uh, for failing to recognize the Holy Spirit.
0: One of uh, my favourite works is The Theatrical Tapes of Leonard Thin, which is written by Adrian Plass. It is a fictional account of his church attempting to put on a play for a local drama festival where all the local churches are pulling together and they're all going to put on plays and there's normally going to be a prize, but it's going to be a fun evening where everyone, you know, the churches all mingle and put on a play. And and Adrian's church has decided to put on a play about Daniel in the Lion's Den. And uh, everything is going wrong. The personalities in the church are all clashing. There's disagreements about casting. There's the, the old lady who's in charge of the costumes, who's, who's a little bit senile, goes to the costume place on the day and they don't have any lines, so she brings duck costumes instead. The thing is a schmuzzle. And <laughs> it ends with with all the people in the church having to accommodate these differences. And and make the best of it, and they're out on stage, and they don't know what to do, and there's these three ducks growling, in the lion's den, <laughs> and they they start improvising on the lines and, uh, cracking jokes and, and making it up as they go, and and you know prejudices that have built up throughout rehearsals are, are, are melted away, and they just sort of do the best they can, and the audience thinks it's hilarious. They think that all the dithering that's happening on stage is a carefully rehearsed sort of satire. That it, it's it's comedic genius and they're all in stitches as these ducks are bobbing around on stage and they win the prize and <laughs> after it all adrian Pless is confronted by the person who wrote the play and he thinks oh this is appalling um uh, because we've just butchered his play terribly and he apologizes he said look, look i'm sorry the whole thing's been a bit of a failure really you know it really was a mistake and we're so sorry to have mucked up your and the guy interrupts him and says a failure." He said, "No, it couldn't possibly be a failure." You know, Victoria Flushpool, who's one of the members of the church, is very stern and unyielding and critical of others. And you know, she, she was she was up on stage laughing. And it, you know, maybe God just really enjoyed having making you all rub shoulders against each other. On, on what grounds do you say this was not a success? On what grounds would you say that God's spirit was not involved in this process? Just because it turned out completely different to, to how. How you thought it has made you see each other in a new light. Surely that's surely that's success. One
3: thing that I have, I think, learned over the last uh, few years, and it may at times be a little bit unfair. I I wouldn't deny that, but it is a deep mistrust of people overusing, <laughs> and again, in my opinion, overusing. Uh, the Lord's name to describe their plans. Uh, it's a very common sort of language pattern in in the Adventist church. These sort of phrases about, well, God led us
0: here and God is working
3: there and God
0: did this and God did that. God opened a door. Usually God opens doors.
3: Yeah, and and I have a particular distrust for it. Uh, when it's used in the context of one particular person uh, telling another particular person about how they are quite certain that God has done this or that in that other person's life. Uh, because I think it's one thing to see the hand of God working in your own experience, and, and that's good. Uh, it's quite another thing to look at another person who is maybe suffering greatly uh, or facing difficulties or going through a sort of struggle and blithely telling them, oh, it's all part of God's plan. Because A, are you really the one who's in a position to confidently say that? How, how much of God's plan do, does any of us as an individual know to that level of detail? Uh, and B, is this the most loving, loving, comforting thing that you can say to a person who is suffering, that, oh, well, uh, you have cancer, but I'm sure it's part of God's plan. That that sort of thing uh, bothers me a lot, uh, because I have seen it cause tremendous suffering in church members and non-church members and believers, and I've seen it drive people away from the church, because it's so lacking in empathy. And, and it's it's there's an arrogance to it. Um, and I think, I think we can sort of do it unthinkingly because it is sort of part of the church culture to talk this way. But I do wonder if it is not a form of taking the Lord's name in vain.
0: Certainly one of the themes from the book of Acts is that we ought to be very careful about how confident we are exactly of what God's Holy Spirit is doing. When, when you described uh, what you did, I immediately thought of this passage, which is from a, a separate Adrian plus work, and it's a mock interview. And the interviewer says, Mr. Williams, you and your wife ha- have a recent experience of seeking guidance. Tell us about it, what, w- will you? And Williams says, well, what happened was we, uh, we tried one door that we thought the Lord was opening for us, but when, as it were, we, we pushed it, we found it was shut. So we tried another door, and this time it did open. So we passed through, and on the other side there was another door, but... Uh, this one was shut like the first door, and when we turned around and tried to go back through the previous door, that is, the second door, we discovered it, it had shut behind us. So we were, in fact, tracked between the two doors. So we had to climb out, as it were, through a skylight, and we came down through another skylight and found ourselves in front of a, uh, a, a door. This door was slightly ajar, so I pushed it, but it was on a very strong spring. swung swung back and hit me quite hard in the face (laughs) anyway it goes on for a fair bit after that um.
3: adrian plus does have an excellent way (laughs) making fun of the language of the church
2: yeah yeah Yeah.
0: Um, without making fun of the church necessarily because the reason some of these metaphors and some of these ways of, of speaking are employed is because they must be at times accurate but It must certainly be the case, too, that we we sometimes overdo it. Paul, uh, sorry, Peter and the disciples and the New Testament church are confronted fairly frequently. But it doesn't doesn't begin then, of course. It, It begins in Christ's ministry. Christ, while he was on earth with Peter, was saying many things that must have made a lot more sense to Peter after this experience with Cornelius. Retrospectively, all the things you know, we commented a few weeks ago about Jesus deliberately passing through Samaria to meet and talk with a woman there. Um, there's the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, there's the Roman centurion, where Christ rebukes the Pharisees and basically tells them he'd be relieved if they had at least as much faith as this centurion. He hasn't found faith like this centurion's faith anywhere in Israel.
1: And and Paul speaks about the. Uh, lack of uh, distinction, the equality of uh, all humanity before God in Colossians 3, verse 11. There is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Well, I, I think it, it also says a lot to um, about
3: the growth of Peter as a, as a Christian and as, a, as an individual. When you contrast his, his action and reaction and words here... To the way he was, you know, back in the gospels, that he very quickly uh, cottons on to the lesson here, as it were, mm. and guides the other Jewish believers involved in a way that, that Christ, you know, once guided him. And it's, it's really nice to see. Mm.
2: You know, something interesting is occurring to me as, as you're describing that process of transformation we so often think of witnessing as being an activity where we are asking someone else to change, usually to be more like us. But what's happened here in the story of Peter is that Peter has had to transform enormously in his thoughts. In other words, sort of doctrines, you know, his idea structure has had to transform enormously, his, his cultural attitudes and his rituals and behaviors. And what I'm hearing here is an interesting challenge. Throughout history, there have been times we often identify them retrospectively as being times of prominent leading of the Holy Spirit, where people have changed their ideas and their habits and their behaviors significantly. And then those times get followed by eras where subsequent people, subsequent generations, attempt to preserve those insights and it almost becomes fossilized until it reaches the point where something snaps. So I'm thinking here, the Axe Church are people who are being culturally and doctrinally transformed by the Holy Spirit as they participate in witnessing. And if in our own church, the early Adventist pioneers, none of by definition, none of the early Adventist pioneers were born Adventists. So they all ended up where they were because they changed in some way. They changed some of their thinking on things like eternal conscious torment and day of worship and and other key ideas, but they also changed various elements of their daily rituals and habits. And it's an interesting challenge to think, what is the change that I should be engaging in in order to be following the leading of the Spirit today, but I'm resisting because I think I'm trying to defend the insights and the change that happened five or six generations ago
0: it's a strong point lock and you began by saying that um we look back retrospectively and identify periods when the holy spirit was active in this story peter was not looking back retrospectively he was identifying god's spirit he was living in it right then Mm -hmm. and now you know your your comment that Witnessing usually involves an expectation that other people will change and become more like us. It speaks to a, a theme we made in a recent episode about the fact that perhaps we should be more transparent about our needs when we witness, that, that we really do hope to benefit from, their, from people joining our church because our church has deficiencies and needs that they can fill. The question is, does the Adventist church believe it has needs? And does the Adventist church see that it is in a moment just now when God's spirit is active? When when we talk about inspiration of the spirit, even though we pay lip service to the concept of present truth, that truth is continually being unveiled, the truth that's being unveiled, at least at the moment in the Adventist church, at least from uh, senior figures uh, in the GC, it's not universal in, in all parts of the Adventist Church, but there seems to be an emphasis at the moment that the truth that's being unveiled right now is exactly the same, unchanged, from five generations ago. We are more or less claiming that it is our duty to to adhere to an event which we re- retrospectively identify as God's Spirit being active, and that, that the role god's spirit has in the church today is is in just keeping us exactly the same is there a contrast i hear you saying Locke, in the last part of your comment between thinking exactly what the early adventists thought and doing what the early adventists did are those two sometimes at odds
3: of course they are (laughs) Sorry <laughs> to be so blunt. But of course they are, because they lived in a very different time. It is a an recognisable truth that if you try and imitate a pioneer, you will, by definition, not be pioneering anything, because you are trying to repeat something that was already done when it was done for the first time. You cannot pioneer the same thing twice. To be a pioneer is to do something new, by definition. The only way you can imitate the pioneers is to do something new.
0: It is actually really interesting, Luke, to think of Peter here as a pioneer, because this this passage actually does provide a really, I think, healthy balance between two concepts, both of which must be true. It must be the case that as people of faith or as humans generally, we have a lot to learn from the past, and for us to discredit the past because we think we've come up with the latest and greatest new thing can be quite dangerous at times. I mean, that's, that's something that must be true. It's equally true, of course, that to just accept what's happened in the past, and this is not just in religion, but in life generally, and refuse to grow or, or to accept new knowledge when it comes or, or, or to adjust our worldview uh, to better fit our current circumstances, you know, is equally as dangerous. And um, this passage has Peter, he, he, he avoids both faults and embraces both benefits. In, in his sermon to Cornelius, he talks about the history that comes before Christ. Uh, we read some of it. What verses are it? Uh, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news. He talks about John. Does he talk about the prophets? I seem to remember him talking about the prophets. In verse 43, all the prophets testify him that everything who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter is at least briefly, you know, drawing on the, the strength and the roots of his past. At the same time, he's he's treading new ground. And I am a bit sceptical if I'm told by someone that present truth just means new things will be added to what we believe, but nothing nothing that our early founding fathers and and Mothers believed will ever be taken away Uh, It's clear that in this story A fair amount of what Peter was taught As a child growing up Had to be taken away
2: Yeah, or at least seen In a very different light And in some cases Not taken away But shuffled to a different place On the priority scale
1: Mm. I think one of the risks And I say this Well I say it somewhat reluctantly, I think. Uh, But I think one of the traps that we as a church are falling into is to codify our beliefs, uh, to codify our doctrines, to codify our rules for living, and use those things as a substitute for relationship with the Trinity. Uh, and
0: Perhaps even codify our culture
1: quite uh, all of those things, and to have a confidence in our version of the truth uh, rather than to place our confidence in God and his work in the
2: world. I like your phrasing there, work in the world, Ken, and it links back to, to your uh, identification of the word seek in and you shall find that we read in Luke 11 last week in our, in our podcast. Jesus says a lot that we should be seeking the kingdom, seeking the kingdom of God. And I've often wondered what we think that means. There's a lot of different things you could do with that. But the verb seek does seem a little bit unusual there in in a lot of the ways that, that I normally think about the kingdom of God. And you described the words God's action in the world, what God is doing in the world. And... I just wondered to myself how different witnessing would be if instead of coming at it with the mindset of I have something, the truth, or um, you know something that you need, you don't have it, and I am looking for an opportunity to give it to you. Uh, how different is that from an attitude of, hey, I'm on the lookout. I'm seeking the kingdom. I know that the Spirit is out there working. The book of Acts tells me about it lots of eras of Christian history tell me about it. Even some of my own life experiences have awakened me to the fact that the Spirit is out there in the world working and moving. And I am, as part of being a follower of Christ, I am actually participating in a life of seeking that. And whenever I see it, a little pocket of it, like my non-religious PhD supervisor that I had, who was the coordinator of postgraduate students in physics, and treated that role with a huge amount of pastoral care for PhD students in the physics department, but wasn't approaching it at all from a, from a religious uh, motivational perspective. But the way he was interacting with people, ha, there's a little pocket Ooh. of spirit there. It, it needs amplifying, perhaps. It's not in its clearest articulation, perhaps, but sure as, sure as anything, I, I've seen a little bit of it there and I, I'm attuned to it. I'm looking for it because the verb seek is the verb I have been instructed with.
0: And what you're suggesting, Locke, does not imply that we have nothing to bring. Peter Peter has something in this story that Cornelius doesn't. But it does mean that Peter is a very aware, as a seeker of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's the thing that validates the whole experience, isn't it, when he finds the Holy Spirit. Mm. And what it means is that Peter has a lot to learn. He knows he has lots to learn. And, you know, maybe he's never quite sure where the next teachable moment is going to turn up. Where, when's the next time going to be when I'm going to have to learn something? Um, he, he's, he's able to act on what he, he knows, but, but isn't. Uh, it puts a different dimension on faith, doesn't it? Because we always talk about standing firm in our faith. P- part of the Jewish faith that was part of their religious teaching was their segregation from Gentiles. Uh, so was Peter not standing firm in his faith? That This whole topic seems to be a bit difficult. Maybe we should pick something a bit easier. I, I'm not convinced that what happened in Cornelius' house would have been welcome in an Adventist church.
1: Well, it wasn't welcomed in Jerusalem.
0: Well, true.
3: I, I think we talked about on a previous episode, we talked about the idea that sometimes there's more faith required in changing your mind about something... As a result of being led by the Spirit, then there is required to continue holding of you.
0: That's a powerful point, Luke it it's not it's not a contradiction of faith because Peter does not have he doesn't have faith in a list of doctrines. he has a faith in God.
3: Yes, and that's something which I think can be easy to forget that as Christians, our faith is in God. Uh, and our faith is tested most when we don't understand or when things we thought we know we're faced with with new information or evidence that suggests we were wrong at least in my experience that has been when faith is tested most the faith is and and if the faith is not in God and rather the faith is in a, a doctrine or an organization that is when the faith is is broken and lost um, because when you put your faith in the wrong things it doesn't survive that sort of Transition. Do does any do any of you know the origin of the Adventist tradition of using the word witness in its in its established meaning as as evangelism? I, I don't. No, I don't. Because I'm thinking about the the grammar around it and and what it actually means. Because if the literal meaning of the word witness is to observe something, which comes back to what we were talking about with. The fact that Peter observed something new and came to a new conclusion changed uh, as a result of it. His witness was literally witnessing something from God.
0: I like that, Luke. I think that's superb.
3: i have tried to think of all the different ways we use the word. You say to be a witness, well, that still means to be someone who witnesses, who sees something. Yeah. To witness to others is a way we use it sometimes. But is that... I'm just interested in the origin of it because the meaning is is, is not as clear-cut singular as uh, the Adventist tradition would make it seem.
0: That's a really interesting question. Maybe some of our listeners might know the answer. Um, I, I certainly don't. I think the idea of, I mean, certainly in this story, isn't it, that, that Peter is a witness in the sense of seeing something new? which, he then, which the, he then goes back and brings to the church in Jerusalem. And in that sense, he witnesses to them. Um, this is obviously a very formative and uh, deliberate action on the part of God to bring this event about. Uh, the point I was going to make, <clears throat> and we are running out of time, so uh, we might have to wrap it up with this, but I think it summarizes a lot of what we've said. Uh, I think we need a new hymn. We have a, a hymn, Blessed Assurance. And I like it. It fits very closely with what we've said. Uh, Because the thing in that hymn that we are celebrating assurance of is that Jesus is mine. It's the person of Christ in whom we have assurance. I think that it would be very useful to have another hymn, Blessed Unassurance. We, We have some unassurances. I mean, we're obviously not assured of health and wealth and happiness in this life. We're not even assured that we are right on all fronts, uh, no one in the history of the Bible ever was. It would be a little arrogant to assume that we've reached the sum total. You know, there's lots of things that that we can't be assured of, or that we're not assured of. But we we do have a blessed unassurance uh, What makes it bearable, maybe what makes our efforts productive, what makes them rich and meaningful to us, is the working of God's Spirit. Is is that? that God made himself ours, that Jesus is mine. And in the light of that, the things we're unassured of don't don't really matter so much.
1: And that's the wonderful message of Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me.
0: Well, we're going to have to leave it there. If you want to continue uh, this discussion, then the way for that to happen is for you to take part. And you can send us an email uh, to the address Sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you. And we're so glad that you could join us.